0: Hey everyone, this is Chris Tapp with The Cold Stairs, and I'm with Jay on The Cold Rocks.
1: everyone what's happening happy sunday here on the hook rocks the ultimate rock media podcast i'm jay scott taking you through another rock and roll conversation another great episode on the hook rocks Uh, we are part of the pantheon podcast network great network of music related podcasts check out a lot of my friends on that uh, network you can see them all uh, at pantheonpodcast.com and follow on social media pantheon pods on twitter facebook and instagram don't forget to follow the hook rocks on instagram twitter and facebook at the hook rocks set your app to automatic download wherever you podcast so you get the latest episode right to your phone and write us a review tell us what you think of the episodes and how we're doing and the conversations we have uh we've had some great episodes since the first of the year of course we started with our album of the year episodes the two-parter um look for our quarterly episode here coming up probably in about a month in april But Chris Corradetti and I break down the albums of the year that we do every year and find out who we picked as our album pick of the year, along with a lot of members of the Groove Council, which is a great group of music friends that uh, share music via DM here on Twitter. Uh, We just had Chris Tapp of The Cold Stairs talking his new album, Voices, that comes out March 10th. Love that band, a band that you must see when they come to town, and a band that you must check out. Great music. Uh, Prior to that, had Dorothy Martin. She returned to the Hook Rocks after her visit in December, talking (laughs) the women in rock, her latest single, Black Sheep, and the anniversary of her album, the year anniversary of her album, Gifts from the Holy Ghost. What's amazing about this album is the song Black Sheep is on the Billboard charts, and for those that follow the business side of music, to have an album that's still relevant a year later and still has a song that's charting a year later is very rare because usually albums come out and they're forgotten within the next few weeks, next month or so, and artists go on tour and they release a single here and there. But a year later for a single to, I think it's number 12 on Billboard, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. We did a nice run of some new music spotlights with Austin Mead, Abby Kaye. And dead blonde stars. So check those out as well. Um, uh, we also had Empire, Henrik Steenholt from the band Empire. They've got a new album coming out March 31st. Uh, we had Sam Bam Colton and Ace Von Johnson on our conversations and collaborations. It's the episode five that of that ep- uh, series that we do. So check that out. Great friends, great conversation as always. We also welcome Jared James Nichols to the episode. And we did a review of the Orianti show. Um, that happened a couple weeks ago. The Ozzy Osbourne Legacy Show we did with Sydney Taylor. Great episode. We had Ricks and Dax Nielsen from Cheap Trick and Scott Stevens on our producer, producer series. The great collaborator or songwriter who's written for Lizzie Hale and Aaron Jones and many other artists. So check that out. Great conversation. And of course Richie Kotzen from The Winery Dogs and The monopolization of live entertainment and what's going on with Live Nation and Ticketmaster and an update on TikTok with Christine Eagle. Lots of episodes, so check all those out when you get a chance. We always appreciate you listening. And we've got another great episode, a quarterly episode that we're running a little late on, and that's our live album review that we do quarterly. We didn't do it in February. I had stuff going on, and my guest Rob had something going on too as well or a bunch of stuff going on so here we are better late than never and we are discussing an album that was a big part of my childhood and one of the reasons why i'm a big rush fan is because of this live album i know all the world's the stage was the first live album i rushed and the reason why i chose exit stage left is because of the impact it had on my music taste growing up as a kid and just the importance of this record when I was growing up. And it features Rush at its peak, in my opinion, with the release of Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures prior to this album that really brought them into mainstream. Of course, you know, 2112 and Farewell to the Kings were all great albums, as their catalog is but in terms of crossing over to more of a mass audience, that's what happened with moving pictures and and permanent waves. And this album is kind of a celebration of those two albums with the song selection and the set list. And we're going to get into it. We're going to get into its history. We're getting into it. What we think of the album. And I'd like to welcome in the Recivitus at on Twitter at the Recivitus. And it is Rob in the Hood. What up? What up, Rob? How are you?
0: Hey, Jay. I'm doing uh, pretty well here in formerly sunny Southern California where we've had snow over the last couple of weeks, bizarrely enough. But uh, I'm okay. How are you?
1: (laughs) I'm good. Not just snow. Like, you guys have had, like, snow. Like, real accumulation. Not just something that is here for an hour and gone by the end of the day.
0: Well, yeah. (laughs) Where I live, it didn't really lay on the ground, which would have been really bizarre. It did snow. On two different days uh, where I got some good video. We, we had like two-inch flakes falling outside my house, which is just unreal in this setting. I mean, I grew up in Denver where I got used to it, but I'm not used to it here.
1: <laughs> do they even have snow piles in California? I mean, I imagine up in the mountain areas they probably do. but
0: Yeah, and where I live, uh, we're not too far away from the Big Bear Big and Lake Arrowhead area. And they mm-hmm. they get snow there all the time. They have ski resorts actually up there. And then uh, also in the um, the San Gabriel Mountains, they have uh, a ski resort near uh, Wrightwood up there, and they have snow plows in that area. But it um, if it actually started sticking on the ground down here in the valley, the LA Basin area, I, <laughs> I don't know what they would do.
1: <laughs> I was talking to a friend who lives out there, and he was telling me that the ski the skiing right now in California is like golden, like the 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 snow, the type of snow, and the, how it's packing. Is making for like a plus skiing out there right now,
0: yeah. I mean, usually, um, I, I, I'm gonna have to give a plug to the Colorado ski resorts just because the, the snow in Colorado is always it's a much drier snow, it's light and powdery. And, and here, you're gonna get a lot more moisture content in your snow, and they have a nickname for a lot of it, Sierra Cement. So, I haven't talked to anybody that's gone up there mostly because the mountain roads have all been closed, but I'll, I have a couple of skiing friends who probably report to me and tell me how good it is,
1: yeah. But- <laughs> You know, the weather pattern's all over. I mean, places are getting colder, you know, the last few years. So winter has always been an adventure here in Chicago, but it's kind of satisfying to see the rest of the country kind of deal. With. <laughs> <laughs> you know, outside the Midwest, people really don't understand what we go through and why we're built a little differently here in the Midwest, you know, because we have to deal with three to four months of really – cold and bad weather and you know when i always joke and i've said it here a couple times on the podcast and when it gets above 40 we're out grilling and we're in shorts and that's not a lie because our body gets so accustomed to the cold that when it gets above freezing it feels warm so that's why we're out in shorts and grilling and on you know shorts and a hoodie when it's 40 45 degrees where other states like in the south or out in the west you know, if it gets 40, 45, I and mean, they have got winter coats on, they got jeans oh. on, it's crazy.
0: There's absolute panic on the faces of people around me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend who was visiting from Tennessee probably like six years ago, and she drove in to visit her family, and it was the first time that she came in the winter. And she texted me when she, you know, when she you know was in driving. and she got to her destination. And she texted me, y'all crazy doing 80, 85 miles an hour in a blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like no big deal. You know, it's just like you just yeah. got to go through it. Um, but that is pretty much, I mean, if you get on the highway here in Chicago during a snowfall, there is no difference between driving under those conditions than when it's, you know, 90 and sunny out.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you um, Back to, the I guess, the, the Snagglepuss album that we have at hand um you talked about this kind of being um the the time period where it really uh spoke to you as far as rushes becoming part of your rock and roll lexicon so to speak and then and i'm kind of the same way i have a very distinct memory uh from sixth grade when i had a friend who brought a copy of moving pictures uh to school and i had um I had known of Rush, but wasn't like really into it. This was right around the time where I had kind of the great awakening into rock and roll. And uh I started, I looked at his album and I was like, look at that drum set. That's really cool. And and started listening to it. And it's really when Rush um really started speaking to me and got on my radar. So this is kind of like the same um touchstone point for me as as you talked about.
1: Yeah, it brought them from... Being more of a, a niche band that was very popular, that had a big audience, especially after twenty one twelve, with these long journey songs, you know, these long, you know, songs that were like were like a journey, like a, you know, almost like a, a period where you you know, had to sit and just listen to their music because something was happening every couple of minutes and it was going different twists and turns and doing all these things and it was, you know, these epic. Songs and as much as we love those songs, and you know hardcore Rush fans love those songs, the masses typically don't. It goes right over their head. They want something that is quick and easy to to pay attention to. I mean, even now, you know, with the attention span of people is completely almost gone. But moving pictures, permanent waves, exit stage left, and then signals after this album really in context brought rush to the mainstream at that time where people were maybe who may have not wanted to listen to them because of those epic songs prior to permanent waves and moving pictures they were now listening to them because spirit of the radio and free will and tom sawyer and red barchetta and these you know limelight all these songs that were Radio friendly in the sense that they radio could play the song, you know, that was four minutes, five minutes back in the day, and not lose an audience or have someone change the channel. They weren't obviously pop songs. By no means am I suggesting that, but they were. You know, rock radio was much different back then, where you could play a song like Free Will and in Red Barchetta on a mainstream rock station, and there'd be no issue. You know, now if you play you know, red barchetta on a modern rock station or something like that. You know, it, it's considered classic rock, but to that point, it was, it was friendly to the ears. It was friendly to absorb, especially a young person like myself, you know, who was listening to this. And that really grew into my passion for Rush after, after these albums. Um, I remember being in grade school and us having these this fair every every year that was like a 3 day thing in a school gymnasium where you could play games and win prizes and every year the prize was this Rush poster it was Rush and Genesis were like the two big things at at the school at that time and obviously kind of the same trajectory too where they had these epic songs in the beginning of their career more proggy and then you know Genesis with you know, Abacab and and Turn It On Again and all these songs that were more radio friendly, similar to Rush, they kind of had that same type of 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 you know fan base that was growing because of the change in their and the way they the way they wrote music and the way they they did the arrangements and and um and whatnot. So it was important. And exit stage left was like the big deal. That was like the record that you had to have. Because live albums were still a thing coming out of the seventies. Um, you had the two big albums right before this, and this was, um, this was a great time to be a kid.
0: Yeah, your idea. Right. The, the early rush stuff, they, um, right before permanent waves, they, they really had a tendency to have these long, um, songs that, that almost had movements within them. And, and I think that the average audience, when they see like a song that has four or five, six, even more parts to it, it's not as easily digestible as some of the stuff that was later in, in permanent ways and moving pictures, and so they didn't loo- they didn't lose the musical complexity and the, and the musicianship was always at a very high level, but it certainly made it more accessible.
1: That's the amazing thing about Rush, and we can have a separate discussion on their musicianship, which is well regarded and well known, but to being a band that has these epic songs. 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15, 18 minutes, 22 minutes, whatever it is. To be able to do that and then kind of switch it around and do more condensed songs with still complex arrangements and still show their musicianship and make it appealing to the ear of people listening, right? Because that's always been the knock on prog rock is... It's too complex for people. Like it just it you know, most of the people goes right over their head. And I'm sure they appreciate the musicianship that goes into it, but it's just not a song that you want to listen to if you're driving around or if you're at a party or or whatnot. Whereas Rush was doing that and then they changed and they, they made it more appealing to those people where those people were now tuning in that maybe weren't the people that had tuned them out. That just speaks to how great musicians they were, because that's hard to do. Yeah, I think think, think, complexity and make it appealing to people that don't want complexity.
0: Yeah, I I think that um, the the best example that I can think of of what you're speaking about is is Limelight, where you have an incredibly popular song and remains my favorite Rush song to this day. Um they got a lot of exposure on the air and is well loved and it is a song that has shifting time signatures but never loses the groove of the song and that that's just amazing to me
1: spirit of the radio does the same thing yeah. you know, with the yeah. with the reggae breakdown right um with the time signature in that song right. which comes out of nowhere basically um and that song still resonates with people today and still is very popular. My son. Is doing a band of the bands right now. And that's one of the songs that they're playing. Now think about it. We have cool. <laughs> 17 and 18 year olds in 2023 playing a song that was what 43 years old, 1980. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and and it's a rush tune. It's not like it's an you know, a Beatles song or or a Stone song or or an A C D C song, which is three chords. It's a it's a rush tune. So, you know, they they do it very well. And one of the songs that they were doing was Working Man and they did the guitar solo in the end. They traded off these three guitar players up there. My son and two others were jamming to this. And it's like this 10 minute song live or however long it is. And they did an awesome job on it. That's very cool. Uh, You know, it just speaks to their musicianship that. And how just because something's complex doesn't mean it can't be appreciated by a mass of people, you know, Right. So that is, that is a Testament to them and to who they are to this day and why their music still resonates, why this, why their music doesn't just fade away because whenever you listen to, to rush, you're listening to something that's pretty special.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. This, um, And there was more than just uh, a change in the style, I think, around this time. I mean, Alex Lyson kind of shifted his guitar focus. And and the early Rush albums, he was playing Gibson stuff. Um, And then right around Permanent Waves, I think he started moving towards playing strats. And so those early 80s sounds kind of changed from that thicker, chunkier sound that he had to a more... um, It wasn't quite clean because he definitely definitely still had the distortion on there. He had more effects on it as well, but it had more of a a ringing feel to it. And you really like those open chords. And so the the styles changed, the sound changed a bit. And uh, this album really captures them as being an amazingly tight band uh, right from the get-go.
1: Yeah, this was the second live album released by Rush, as we had mentioned, in October of 1981 by Anthem Records. It was recorded during both the Moving Pictures tour and the Permanent Waves tour. Um, side two of the album was recorded at the Apollo in Glasgow, Scotland in 1980, uh, June 10th and 11th. The remaining three sides were recorded on March 27th, 1981 at the Forum in Montreal during the subsequent tour of their eighth album, Moving Pictures. So let's dive into it. The album begins with some of those songs from the, from the Canadian shows. Spirit of the Radio, Red Barchetta, and then YYZ, which is pretty much what was happening with Rush. I mean, YYZ was an instrumental that connected with a lot of people during that time. Red Barchetta, which is my favorite song. Well, that and Camera Eye are my two favorite off of moving pictures. But I love the way Red Barchetta really captures the sound of a car. Um And, and Alex's guitar becomes a car, basically, during that song. And then, of course, "Spirit of the Radio" is uh, is the first song on the album. You know, the only issue I have with this album, you know, looking back, it's a great album and it's still one of my favorite favorite live albums. But they are individual recordings of of a lot of the songs. Like it doesn't flow through the live show like some of the stuff that we've done, like "Kiss Alive" or "Unleashed in the East." or Strangers in the Night, any of the live albums we record, li- Live After Death that we've done, you know, those are pretty much shows or had a block of songs from a particular show that you had. I love it. I mean, it, it it's very powerful, but I just wish it would have that continuous crowd noise that would make you feel like you're at a show.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's one of the draws of a live album. It really, like the carrying of the energy from one song to the next song, uh, and I think we've talked about at least uh, one time in the past where you really have a couple of different approaches to live albums, as you mentioned, like one is where you're really trying to present what the feel of an, an individual concert was like versus there are some live albums um, and one of my favorites, actually, the, the Kings X live all over the place, which is really a, a collection of individual song performances that are all collected together and and, and presented um, more less as a unified work and more as individual selections, and um, I think it's interesting here. This is a little bit of a hybrid of the two because you have three sides of the album are, are recorded from one tour in one venue, and then the remaining side is from the prior tour in a different venue. And so, and the fact that they've sort of um, interspersed those uh, does kind of inhibit that continuity a little bit that you're speaking about.
1: Yeah, I would have loved to have seen what the presentation would be if it was just a show. Now, being that they have albums that were recorded previous to Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures, of course, they're going to have songs from those albums during a live show. So that might be the biggest reason why they do more or less individual performances of songs, because my guess is that this wasn't what the set was. For those two tours, I imagine there was stuff from Farewell to Kings and stuff from 2112 and Caress of Steel and all their albums prior to Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures. So it's difficult to do that when you have a situation like that, you know, especially when you've done a live album previous, like All the World's a Stage, which covers a lot of those albums. It's, it's a difficult situation for the band to be in to... Do a live set a live show now, as a band gets older in their career and, and and stays around for a bit and they have live albums as they become more of a legacy act like Rush did towards the end, you know you can play those songs during a set and record them, put them on a live album because it gives a perspective of what they did on that tour like I remember when I saw them on the test for Echo tour. I think that was the first time that they ever did the whole 2112 in its entirety. And they did a live album. I think it was different stages that they did. That was the live album after the test for echo tour where they had that on there that never appeared on a live album before that, you know, that was not, I don't think all the role of the stage has the full 2112. I could be wrong, but I get it. I get when that happens and I get, when you're in 1981 and you just did a live album three albums ago and you want to showcase the songs that you've done since then, I understand why you probably can't do a continuous set like a lot of bands would have.
0: Yeah. And I think it's difficult for bands when they get to like this stage in their career, the band had eight studio albums prior to this and um you can't please everybody and so you, you've got to kind of compromise here and there and there's certainly stuff that i wish was on here that isn't but uh the stuff that is on here is great and and that that first the first lick of the spirit of radio where you have lifeson doing those iconic pull-offs um it, it really s- sets the tone for the, the whole album and the sound of the music is great that's one of the fabulous things about this album is the is the sound and and how each instrument really. Uh, comes through, nothing gets drowned out. Getty Lee's bass has this incredible clarity to it and his playing has a, a melodic quality that that really assists that. And, and of course Neil Peart, um is is his his m- musicality of his drumming is phenomenal and really what makes him such a um an iconic drummer. Um so that 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 first uh, spirit of radio intro to the album is is a good um is a good way to pull the audience in and get the energy up at, a, at the initial
1: stage. You know, for that band, that really is the perfect song to start a show with. I mean, they were even doing that song later on in their career as their opener. Cause it does really set the tone. It does really move you. It immediately gets you in to the live performance. Cause you recognize that song. It's such a popular song and it has such an uplifting feel to it that it is in my opinion the perfect rush song to start one of their shows and you get this <laughs> you, get,
0: you get this immediate of oh my gosh that's only three guys playing because you can it's a it's a great example if you can hear in the song where Geddy Lee is playing the keyboards with his feet now obviously he he does both uh synthesizer that he plays with a regular keyboard and, and throughout certain parts of it and, and but when he's playing bass lines and he's using his feet to provide some some uh, foundation with synthesizers. You are like, man, <laughs> this is a talented band.
1: <laughs> they really are. I mean, that is really the 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 highest compliment you can give to a three piece. Is I can't believe there is three people up there yeah. making that. Yeah. I mean, when I would see them live, I would always walk out of a show after seeing Rush, just absolutely amazed at what I just saw. Like, just completely like this was just absolutely incredible. I get the same feeling when I see the winery dogs, completely different type of band, although they do have a lot of prog influence with them. But anytime I see the winery dogs, it's the same feeling. I can't believe three people are making that music up there. And you really have to be at the top of the line in terms of musicianship. And when, you know, this comparison is really for the sake of this conversation. But when you look at Getty, Alex and Neil, and you compare them to Billy, Mike and Richie, you know, winery dogs right now, when you have those three individuals in that band, they're the top of the food chain when it comes to musicianship right now. And Rush was the top of the food chain for a long time, yeah, because of who they were and what they could do. And when you hear a live album like this and you hear these songs live, it makes you appreciate the music all over again. Spear of the Radio is a song that I've heard hundreds of times on the radio red Barchetta, probably not as uh, as much but in my own personal correct collection listening to red Barchetta or yyz i've heard those songs hundreds of time hundreds of times and hearing them live is a whole different experience and really that's what the essence of rush was is they could do whatever they did on an album they could duplicate it live to near perfection
0: yeah you mentioned the the winery dogs and it's I, one of the ear-catching things about the winery Dogs is whenever you hear Cotson um, and Sheehan have a, a guitar and bass playing this um, mirrored lines where it's, it's complex, it's it's full of notes, it, it's, it's got a lot of subtleties to it, um, and it may, really makes them stand out. And when you get to rid Barchetta on this, right at the end of this, there's a cool portion where Lifeson and Lee are playing the same lines on guitar and bass together. And I really like how it, It um, gives this sense of of, of a band playing as one, as opposed to individuals playing uh, their parts.
1: Very true. Absolutely. When, when I think of, like you said, the winery dogs, you know, those complexities and those harmonies that they do with the bass and guitar and, you know, Rush doing the same thing on Red Barchetta. It's, it's amazing. And it really does pull you in. If the spirit of the radio doesn't grab you in the beginning of this of this album. Red Barchetta certainly does. Uh, the playing on it is amazing. Into Y Y Z, where you hear the complexities of of this instrumental. And speaking of which, back in the day when this was released, this was a popular song that was played on radio. There's no instrumentals played on radio now.
0: Yeah, never.
1: There, it just it just doesn't happen. And this was one of their most popular songs, and it features Neil Peart drum solo in the middle of it that's just absolutely phenomenal and again you know like you talk about with his playing and, and how he played and in his approach and his just the arrangement on the solo it's a song within a song
0: i didn't know for a long time that the um the intro to the song is actually morse code for yyz the the toronto airport code yes. that was something I much later um, and I always thought this is a strange intro to the song. Um, and, and you're right about it being um, kind of groundbreaking as far as being an instrumental that got a lot of exposure. Uh, I did also did not realize in, in, until I started doing a little digging for in preparation for a day. I didn't know this song was, was nominated for a Grammy for Best Instrumental. And uh, uh, a, a good early sense that the Grammys don't know what they're talking about is this song Lost Out to the Polices Behind My Camel. <laughs> no, no offense to the police, but come on.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know it's 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 very sad. Basically, you know it, yeah. it really is. Um, but this the song Y Y Z is appreciated by those those Rush fans and those are the ones that matter to the band. Um, again, these three songs are part of their legacy. They're songs that most casual Rush. Rush fans and obviously the hardcore ones know very well. And to open the album up with pretty much outside of Spirit of the Radio, Moving Pictures was you know, or no wait, Y Y Z was on. Why oh, was he on? Was on Moving Pictures? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, to open this album up with two songs from Moving Pictures and, of course, Spirit of the Radio from Permanent Waves, this this was the moment Rush had arrived to mainstream with these songs. Obviously, Tom Sawyer, which we'll get to in a bit in Free Will, but this is kind of the new Rush. This is kind of Rush transitioning into a mainstream rock band, later adding more keyboards. You know, ap- pretty much after this album was released, they really went in that direction. but. I always talk about bands evolving and why I love when bands do that. And there's probably a handful like Rush that continually, continuously evolved from album to album. And it was it's a joy to see as a fan. And when you finally see the full body of work, when they're done and gone. And you take you go on that adventure of listening to all their albums in in sequential order it really is amazing how even though they made changes time and time again, they still kept their core musicianship and and the complexity still in there, but they made it so friendly to the listener, to the ear.
0: Yeah. There's an aspect of that musicianship that uh, really comes out in YYZ. And that is for me as as someone, you know, I hate to even call myself a guitarist. I play guitar, I play in a band, but it's like, I'm not a, I'm not a serious um, I never have the time to really devote to playing as much as I should and I, I don't know um, as much about uh, like music theory and and the instrumentality as, as I should but when I listen to life since playing on this he has a very um, and this song in particular he has a somewhat unique approach to phrasing that is for me is extremely difficult to replicate Um he has he has a good method of shifting between modes to change the moods, mood of the song. He does that in Y Y Z towards the end, and he has this way of using um, hammer ons and pull offs that to me are not strictly intuitive. And I have a hard I've I've tried playing a couple of uh, of Rush solos, and I have a really hard time um, finding the uh, the mimicry of the notes the way that he does, which is good. I mean, you want to have the the individualism of the playing. It's just I I kind of like in all his playing from that.
1: <laughs> One thing about Alex's playing, like you mentioned, is his phrasing. Yeah. And his phrasing is so influential. There's so many guitar players that have talked about listening to Alex and why they would listen to him. And the phrasing always comes up in, the, in that conversation. And it's very mood-oriented. Like, it, you, you really feel whatever Alex is feeling when he's playing. Um, He has the ability to do these, you know, the the phrasing when he's playing on the notes, but to make you hear an emotion at the same time, which is very unique because a lot of guitar players who do phrasing, obviously there's emotion and playing, but they just don't reach that level of feel or having you feel the listener feel something with what they're playing.
0: Yeah. It's a, And speaking back to the um, the fact that this was on the Moving Pictures tour, this particular part of the disc, I think it's interesting that they don't have more of Moving Pictures represented here on a two disc album, um, and two of the three songs from Moving Pictures are on this first disc, and they're they're not the two that you necessarily that the average listener would would uh, glom onto. So um, it's it's just an interesting aspect of it.
1: I would like to see them maybe with, you know, an anniversary or a special edition exit stage left. I would like to see them release the full shows of, or I think there were three shows that were recorded or however many shows that they recorded to make this album, have them separately have those in like a box set where. Like you promoted. Yeah. Where you got the full show from. June 10th and 11th, you know, in, in, in Canada uh, in 1980, you've got the full shows in around the movie pictures tour, however many shows that they took from and just have them separate. So you can hear that stuff because, you know, I, I would like to hear more moving pictures. Like you said, the camera eye is probably my favorite rush song, my favorite song off of moving pictures. And man, I'd love to hear that during this period when they when they were were at pretty much the height of their popularity.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, that would be very interesting to me as well to hear what did the complete sets sound like? Um how did they vary by night? And obviously they they're going through and picking what they think are the best um representations of the song that are the that have the least imperfections or flaws or however they want to view it, but uh I agree with you that would be interesting to hear.
1: On to the shows in the UK and Scotland and Glasgow. Uh, we had Passage to Bangkok, Closer to the Heart, Beneath, Between, and Behind, and Jacob's Ladder. Four big songs, obviously Closer to the Heart, I believe, was their biggest charting song ever, I think, in the top 40. I think it was in, in the top 20 at some point. I don't know if Spirit of the Radio, Free Will, Limelight, or Tom Sawyer ever reached that high, but Closer to the Heart is a huge song. And this sounds huge with the crowd singing with the song during this performance. And I remember listening to this as a kid hearing that. And I don't know if I had heard a live album when I was young, like that have that much of a interaction with a crowd singing the lyrics word by word. You can hear it in the background. They were completely into the song I don't know if Kiss Alive has that moment or Strangers of the Night has that moment. And if they do, it's definitely not as defined as Closer to the Heart.
0: I could actually only think of one immediate example that is similar to that, maybe even tops us a little bit with the audience participation. But uh, the band does credit, uh, as I'm looking at the, the gatefold, the inside of the gatefold of the album, the band credits the crowd as the, and somebody's going to quibble with the way I pronounce this, the Glaswegian Chorus. Um, and so the, the the crowd gets a credit <laughs> by the band, which is very cool. The only example that I can think of where the crowd is so much a part of one of singing one song is the um, the Tom Petty version of Breakdown on uh, Pack Up the Plantation, where the audience sings the first verse.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. It was just amazing hearing this as a kid. It gave me chills. I remember listening to this and hearing the crowd and I think at that moment I had to go to a live concert. I had to go yeah. to a concert because I wanted to experience this and and for those that have been to shows where they've experienced things, uh, experienced something similar to this. It's a beautiful moment. There's nothing like 20,000 plus people or God, even 10,000 people or 2000 people whenever whatever size of the venue it is because it always sounds as loud as the venue will allow it whatever wherever you go whether it's a small place or a big
2: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them
1: is is just crazy i mean it's yeah it's such a it's a warm feeling because everyone there is together you know everyone there is enjoying that moment equally at the same time and singing back to the band while the band plays and it's man it is just one of the most beautiful things you can ever experience
0: and it's kind of a lightning in the bottle kind of moment and um it it shows you how much Music is really about um, communication, which is why I like I like bands as opposed to you know there are a lot of people that put out great music where they sit down and they play everything on it, but it's not the same thing as having a connection between people that's happening as the music is playing, and that really is the case here.
1: Yeah, I mean you start with Passage to Bangkok, which up until this point I never really appreciated this. Um, song until I heard it on exit stage left. And that happens a lot with a live albums. And I think we've spoken about this on every one of these shows where there's a song that you maybe dismissed or maybe you didn't listen to as much as the others. And then you hear it live and it just jumps through the speakers and it just grabs you in a completely different way. And it becomes one of your favorite songs by the band, Passage to Bangkok or Beneath, Between and Behind, you know, are two of those songs for me where. You know, I liked them when they came out, but there were always songs that I would rather listen to besides those. And when you hear Exit Stage Left and you listen to the music and you listen to the songs, to me, these two songs are, are, are brought out more and become something more than what they are in the studio albums because of the live versions.
0: Yeah. It's, um, this is the only entry from 2112 included on the album um it, i think it has it's difficult for me to put my finger on what's different other than i think the song has more power to it than the, the studio version does um there, it's, there's a slight um increase in the rawness that's the backwards way of saying it i suppose uh, but it, it sounds it, it reaches you more than the studio version of the song does it's also i think the only example of the album where I think that uh, Getty Lee is playing rhythm guitar during a part of it. And I suspect he's using that, uh, I think it's a Rickenbacker double neck, where he had the bass on one neck and uh, a guitar on the other. And so he's playing rhythm beneath, beneath life in there.
1: You know, we talk about Rush and their ability to sound enormous and their ability to sound like there's more than three people on stage with them. A band that's coming out of Canada right now called The Crownlands, it's a two-piece band. And for those not familiar with them, they are modern-day Rush when it comes to their music, with their arrangements, with their epic songs, with with just everything they do. And they're a two-piece. And I can't wait to see them live because they're adamant about saying that they don't use any tracks they're adamant about saying that they do everything live. And I have to see two people making this much music
2: because I just, yeah.
1: think it would be, it would be incredible to see. Um, I know they've jammed with Alex, um, and a couple of different places you could see the stuff on YouTube. Um, Alex loves the band. So if you're a Rush fan and you're looking for a Rush fix, check out Crownlands. They are very much in the spirit of Rush. They are very heavily influenced by Rush. I've had him on the show. They talk about Farewell to Kings like it's their biggest influence that that music had on them. So I think Rush fans will, will definitely enjoy Crownlands.
0: Yeah, that uh, the rendition of Closer to the Heart here is is one of the, I think it's only two places on this album um, where you have some continuity between the songs uh, because the end of, closer to the heart goes straight into the the next song, which is uh, Beneath Between and Behind from Fly By Night. Um, and I, I really like that when there's a, a flowing of one song into the next song from a live album.
1: Yeah, yeah. Great bands do that all the time, kind of make it interchangeable. Um, when Speaking of live albums, I know Kiss Alive does that with Detroit Rock City, or Kiss Alive 2 does that with Detroit Rock City and King of the Nighttime World.
0: Yeah, it's... um that gives you much more of a of a feeling of a live experience when, when you have that connectivity between the two songs.
1: Definitely. And then Jacob's Ladder, which is the epic song that uh, a lot of Rush hardcore fans love. I love it. It's a great tune. Um, it's got a very kind of a dark mood to it, kind of almost like a militant mood to it almost. And they capture that in this performance in Glasgow on this album.
0: Yeah, I actually had to look up to see. So when 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 Geddy Lee starts talking at the beginning of the song, Alex is playing something. I'm like, well, that sounds really familiar, but I know that's not a Rust song. It's, it's it's Ebb's Tide, which is a um, old old song written by Robert Maxwell and Carl Sigmund that's been covered quite a bit. Um, so I had to I had to figure out where that intro part came from. Uh, But Jacob's Ladder is a really good example of what we were talking about earlier, where some of the earlier Rush songs had almost movements within the song, um, and it's broken down into definitive sections. Um, It's uh, it's an interesting closing to the Glasgow segment of this.
1: Very, yeah, very true. And then we go into Bruins Bane, which is more or less an instrumental, going into The Trees off the Hemispheres album. Um, and this is goes back to the Canadian portion of the album that was released or that was played during the permanent waves tour.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's the one piece that's not from any studio album. And it's a, uh, the, the Bruins part of it is a reference to the producer, Terry Brown. Um, and it's just a sort of a classically styled, uh, guitar piece that, uh, Lifeson wrote. That almost serves as as the introduction to the trees, but it's, it's a nice standalone, uh, very beautiful piece as well.
1: Yeah, it's a, and a great. It's a great uh, intro into the trees, which they do seamlessly on this uh, on this album. Yeah, and the trees is an
0: interesting song. Just from a, you know, there's a lot of depth to the the lyricism but it's mostly Pierce doing um, as the primary lyricist in the band for much of the catalog. Um, he's he was clearly a deep thinker. And there was a lot of philosophical uh, bent to, to his lyrics. You don't have the um, party drinking, rock and roll, sex, drugs approach to their songwriting as you have with a lot of bands. And the trees is, is 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 a good one because it's it's an analogy of of as as if two different species of trees were behaving like human beings behave toward each other. Um, and and as a sign of my own nerddom. It actually makes me think of an original Star Trek episode. <laughs> there's a, there's a uh, Star Trek, the, the first series. Um, there's an episode that um, called "Let That Let That Be Your Last Battlefield," where the they have two different people from a planet that are are to the outsider they, they look the same. They have a one half of their face is black, one half of their face is white. Um, and the, the crew doesn't understand why they're at war with each other. <clears throat> and they, they point out that the, the the colors are reversed on each side. And for some reason, that comes to my mind when thinking about this, how when you look at the way humanity treats uh, itself, it can be almost incomprehensible in the abstract. Um,
1: yeah, I think when you hear this song, it still resonates today with what's happening around us. Wherever, you know wherever whether it's overseas whether it's within the borders of this country there's always this this oppression in some form or another to certain people whether it's by race religion sexual orientation and when you hear the the song the trees and you know the songs are all written lyrically by neil it's a, just a, a timeless perspective on what's always at the true base, the true core of oppression or, or, you know, at the true core of a, of a disagreement and why people feel the way they do and, and why people act the way they do. It's, it's still an amazing song. I mean, if there's one song in the Rush catalog that is timeless in terms of subject matter, it's The Trees. Yeah,
0: it's a. I mean, humanity is. It, it it speaks to that that difficult division between wanting to have understanding for each other, but also, um, staying true to your own uh, cultural influences. I mean, that's really a hard thing to do if you think about it. It's like, how do we um, stay together and yet keep identity? I don't know how to express that in a better way, but this song kind of addresses some of those same subjects.
1: Yeah, I'm looking on Spotify right now as I look through the songs here, and there's a mistake, I believe, on the streaming platform that lists... Wait, something's wrong
0: with streaming? I can't believe there's something wrong with streaming. (laughs) I thought streaming was the (laughs) be-all, (laughs) end-all.
1: They list the Glasgow shows in 1980. Which I believe is correct. But they also list the Canadian songs, the Canadian show in as 1980. And that's not. Yeah, it's 81. So come on, Spotify. Get your shit together. You're making enough money as it is. Come on. Or
0: give it up and let us all listen to records. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, The Trees then segues into Xanadu. This was another good transition because it was, it was one song straight into the next. Um, And I appreciated that here. And you went from two different albums to the trees was from Hemispheres. And then it goes into Xanadu, which is from Farewell to Kings, uh, which is from 1977. Um, And I think this is the second time with Xanadu that we have had a song uh, that we have talked about in this series that is influenced by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Because, as as we all know, that was the basis of Rhyme of the Ancient Merit of Iron Maiden, too. And this song was um, inspired by a poem of his called Kubla Khan.
1: Interesting. I did not know the connection on those two songs.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm not as big a fan of Funny Do as this song is, but.
1: (laughs) But no, this is, um, they're both epic songs. What is Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Like an 18-minute song or something like
0: that? Yeah, yeah. It's it's lengthy, yeah. Um, And then this particular song, I think, you know, a lot of people speak of Getty Lee's ability to play synthesizer parts with his feet while he's playing the bass line. But I think in this song, um, the, that Alex Lifeson was doing some of the same things. And this is an incredibly complex song musically for the band to pull off live. And uh, as I was reading about it, they, they, they said, I think that Lee was, was quoted as saying that when they re- recorded the studio version of this song, they got the entire song in one take in the first go-around they didn't use that tape but they got the entire song and that's remarkable considering the the depth of this song the different musicianship that's required instrumentation and the length of it
1: i'm I'm sure that's not the only time they did something on one take right
0: oh i'm sure no i think they actually did the the uh, the version they did use assuming i'm remembering correctly uh, for um, a farewell to kings, which was the second take, was actually also one take. But the fact that they were able to walk in the studio and they had this all down um, is an incredible testament to the to the the nature of this band. It's
1: the lore of Rush, man, the mystique—you know, it's yeah. the it's why people go crazy over them. What's why Rush fans yeah. are so dedicated because there's not another band in rock history that has the complexity has the lyrical content it's the thinking man's rock band as i've always said and for those that do want their music to provoke thought and provoke perspective rush is really the band that does it for a lot of people yeah Yeah. and you know
0: i I feel like i feel a little bit um, almost remiss. I feel like we almost should have Skylab involved in this this conversation because I know he is a a big Rush fan. I'm pretty sure this is his level of devotion. I think I'm pretty sure that he has this album on real to real, um, and that's that's a level that I don't think I'm ever going to reach.
1: <laughs> Amazing stuff, man. I mean, yeah, it, it's a this album live albums from Rush really do showcase their abilities. Obviously, you know, you the albums you can dissect and you hear things in the album. But for a lot of bands, when you hear stuff that Rush is able to do, for a lot of those bands, it's it's a product of the studio. It's the producer, the engineer, the guy that mixes it, playing with or manipulating whatever they need to do to make it sound a certain way. Whereas Rush... They do it on the album and it comes to life and duplicate they duplicate it on a live show. And it's always been the the big thing that Rush fans always say whenever you talk to them about other bands and why they're so passionate and dedicated to them is because they can do it on the album, they can do it live, and the song connects with people, connects with people that you know may have been dismissed or Maybe their, their nerdness is not appreciated by other people, but <laughs> they've got the, the band that speaks to them. And whenever you see Rush fans on social media, they are a passionate group of people. I will say that. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're you're right. Um, I think this, another interesting aspect of this is I think that the band, the sequencing, you and I have always talked about sequencing of live albums. Um, and and you, you already spoke about the... This probably is not representative of what the show sequence was, but it does do a good job of of intermixing the songs that are more well-known and then some of the deeper cuts that the hardcore fans are more appreciative of. And the fourth side of the album is a good example of that.
1: Absolutely. The album ends with Free Will, Tom Sawyer, and another epic instrumental yes um and free
0: will is uh from permanent waves which obviously was the the tour that was for side two of the album um is a song that that most people are familiar with most people at least who had exposure to aor and, and back in the day and and listened to classic rock um i've got looking at my notes here for what i wrote down but I, one of the things i wrote down was listen to that bass <laughs> While uh, there's a couple of points on the on the album, and I think this is one of them where where is playing the, the guitar solo, but but Geddy Lee has this incredibly melodic and non-repetitive way of playing bass underneath the solos that I just find amazing. Yeah. My my other note that I have from the from the end of the song is how can he sing that high? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, a lot of people talk about Neil's genius with the drums, and he certainly is right. He certainly is that dude who can do anything on a drum drum set, and he's argue, arguably one of the best drummers of all time, if not the best. I, I always lean towards John Bonham, but you know, Neil Pert Neil Peart is not a, <laughs> a a distant second in my mind, yeah. but Getty plays bass, keyboards, he sings at a ridiculously high yeah. octave, you know, a high register. And to do all that, and then also play a little bit of rhythm, guitar, he is basically, you know, the you know John Paul Jones of Rush. You know, John Paul, John Paul Jones could do it all too with Zeppelin. He did all the arrangements, he did all that, all the stuff with the mandolin, you know, the mandolin, the, you know, the keyboards, the organ, the bass, all that stuff. And I don't know, maybe it's just something with a bass player being able to do a lot of different things, or those two bass players being able to do pretty much anything, play any type of instrument. But Getty Lee, again, shines on this, and probably you end up appreciating him even more than you would normally appreciate him because of his performance.
0: Yeah. And if, if, if Neil and Alex are the, front and back covers of a book that that really capture your attention and draw you to it from the get-go Getty Lee is the binding that holds it together and that book would be nothing without that binding
1: yeah yeah he's such a powerful individual powerful musician um always great to to watch his interviews Getty and Alex and even when when Neil was around I always had this this draw to them when they would be speaking in an interview. I could just listen to interviews with Getty, Alex, and Neil all day long because there's very little ego, if any, in their personality. They don't take themselves that serious. You think that they would with the type of music that they would put out, right? You think that they would be like this elitist, you know, guys with pipes, you know, and, and, you know, Talking about the intricate, you know, C's and the complexities. But they're just normal dudes that really know how to play and have a great perspective on things and seem like they're very kind individuals.
0: Who cared about each other as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alex and Getty are friends since grade school, high school. And, and you know, Neil being part of that too as well. And and those three up until Neil's passing. You know, obviously they had the original drummer on the first album, but, you know, they were an entity that could not be broken through anything. And I think that speaks to them and it speaks to their lack of me, 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 which happens in a lot of bands. We can all talk about the bands that had that member or two that makes it about them or tries to draw the attention to them. There was never any of that with Rush makes them such an easy band to love and enjoy because of who they are as people. And then when you bring in the music and you listen to what they do, it's it's just another element of
0: how great they are. Yeah. The music is the forefront, not the personalities.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah and, the, uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, I was going to say uh, uh, Tom Sawyer is one of the most recognizable Rush songs, and that's the the next one that's up in the in the lineup. And one of the things that I've always found interesting about life since playing is he uses, and actually Jimmy Page did this a lot too, and so is Jakey e. Lee. He uses really interesting open chords um, throughout the songs, and, and the first part of Tom Sawyer is a really good example of that.
1: This was the song when I was a kid, right? I mean, it was Tom Sawyer. Everybody in my grade school talked about Tom Sawyer, Tom Sawyer. I was all over the, you know, any conversation in the early days of grade school before the impact MTV had on music, this was the tune that everybody just went gaga over. And why wouldn't you? I mean, it's just a a complete celebration of who the band is. It's got complexity. It's got a interesting topic lyrically, um it's got a just a repetitive driving movement beat throughout the whole song, even with the time changes and the time signatures. Um it's really is kind of like almost like the cashmere for that Zeppelin that that, that it was to Zeppelin what Tom Sawyer is to Rush.
0: That that line that the bass and the guitar uh play together. That has that almost sinister groove to it, um, really captures the listener. Uh, this song provides a good example of how bands have to adapt to the live setting when you have a fade out. Um, I'm always interested to see how bands end songs. The studio version is a fade out of the song, um, and this is this. I like the way they end this one.
1: Yeah, this was the big. This was really what catapulted them into mainstream. I know Spear of the Radio and free will came before on permanent waves and that kind of was a giant step for them but tom sawyer you know when you when you ask a rush fan what song defines them you know the the hardcore fans are going to go into their the 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 box of deep cuts and Whether it's Jacob's Ladder or Xanadu, which are on on this album, or some of the other stuff that's released. Obviously, 2112 was big. It's not really a deep cut, but it's a well-known song. But Tom Sawyer, for Rush fans, whether hardcore, whether casual fans, know this song, and it still remains on radio today, whatever that means. Obviously, radio isn't the same as it was years ago, but it is the definitive song of Rush, I believe. it is. The song that really brought everything together and brought them to the forefront, opened the doors to new fans that maybe weren't listening to them, as we talked about earlier in this conversation. Tom Sawyer, even though we can make the argument that it's overplayed, being overplayed doesn't mean it's suddenly a bad song. Being overplayed means that thousands and millions of people appreciate this song and it still connects with people today.
0: If you point to a song as being the one song that every person knows from Rush, it's this particular song.
1: Yeah. That that's and that's that's the song that defines them, in my opinion. You know, I mean yeah. when you take in the transition of them going from this prog band to still having prog elements and you know in their music, they didn't lose any of that. They just were able to kind of smooth out the edges and redefine themselves as as a band that was evolving, that still had the complexities, that was, you know, adding in Synthesizer, and obviously we know what happened after this, where Signals came out and, you know, Grace Under Pressure and, you know, all the other albums that came out after this, this was really, you know, the the sun that allowed them to do that. If if any of this falls flat for them, permanent waves or moving pictures, maybe rush doesn't go on to do what they did and keep evolving. We don't know, right? That's an argument that has a lot of unknowns in it because they did break through with moving pictures and permanent waves. But this just speaks to their mastery of again, not to keep hammering this point, but keeping the band kind of defined as progressive, but making it appeal to those that aren't big progressive rock fans. It's amazing. Yeah. It's genius.
0: Yeah. And then now that they have your, have the masses attention with Tom Sawyer, then they dive right into the deepest cut on the album. <laughs> I'm
1: telling you, this is God. this instrumental here is one that, is so difficult to play. I mean, musicians talk about the difficulty level of playing this song and how Rush was able to do it, but they don't know how they were able to do it.
0: Yeah, uh, We're talking about La Via Strangiato, and um, I saw a quote from uh, Neil Peart that says this all basically came from a sequence of Alex Lifeson's dreams, and he basically translated them into music
1: such a beautiful piece of music, whereas YYZ is this great instrumental, obviously, but it's 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 a rock instrumental, right? It's it's it kind of showcases, you know, the the who they are as musicians, obviously, with the Morse code and this La Villa, Strange Gato, is is more art, in my opinion, than YYZ rock.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, there are a lot of, of really devoted Rush fans on Twitter to sometimes my feed looks like it's all Rush just based on, on how devoted some of these people are. But, um, I have seen this song cited as a favorite many, many times by, the, by two, two groups of people, really. One group who are really devoted Rush fans and one group that are true musicians um and and both of them point to this song as being a perennial favorite
1: yeah it is i mean if you were we just talked about the song that defines rush being tom sawyer if you were to find a song by rush that's pure art it's this one i mean this is a very artistic piece this is not going for any type of radio airplay it's not going for any type of it's not trying to appeal to a mass audience. If, if there's a song that Rush did for themselves, I would say that it's this.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really cool to see a live version of it on this. Um, I mean, the song grabs you right away. Al- or Lifeson just rips into the guitar at the start of the song. And and from there on, it's just a, a journey throughout various emotions, valleys, peaks, and so forth.
1: And the phrasing on this too, with Alex. Yeah. Yeah again like you mentioned before you know it it's it has a mood to it it has a feeling to it 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 really does set the emotion for the song Yeah it it sure does um, so you've
0: you've talked about um the camera eye being your favorite song off of moving pictures i'm assuming that's one that you kind of wish was included on this Yes are there any other omissions that you would like to have seen on here?
1: Who? Um, I would obviously the camera eye, but if I were also to. Witch Hunt, I would love to see.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, That's on my list. <laughs>
1: yeah, Witch Hunt would have been great to see on this. Um, it's a song that really doesn't get the recognition I believe it deserves. Um, Entree New is another one that I love. Entree New is a great song. Uh, Trying to think on Hemispheres. If I had to choose one on Hemispheres, what would it be? Circumstances would be one I would love to hear um obviously you know cygnus x1 book two yeah. um but if you put that one on you can't it's going to be hard to have xanadu on this as well yeah
0: um, yeah like i said i understand that they have to make compromises because you can't present everything unless they want right. to do a triple album right. instead of a double uh, yeah i mean i mean I cygnus x1 that-
1: is 18 minutes long you know what i mean
0: yeah, that's that's probably one thing that would keep the camera eye off of a release like this because it is also not a short song. Um, I totally agree with you on Wish Hunt. If I would, I would like to say my my three favorite songs off of moving pictures are not on this release, which is interesting considering the in fact this is the three of the sides are, are that tour. Uh, Witch Hunt, Limelight. I would love to see and see. Yeah, there.
1: Limelight's not on here. That's another one. Absolutely. I mean, you forget that Limelight's not on this. Con- you know considering how yeah. big it was.
0: Of my other favorite song off of uh moving pictures is Vital Signs, um, which I thought was a great album closer. Um, and I would like to have heard that live here as well. The uh, as far there was nothing off of this self titled on here, and there was nothing off of Caress of Steel. I would have the my favorite deep cut, I think, uh, from their earlier catalog is The Fountain of Lambeth, which would have been cool to hear a live version of.
1: Like I said, I would love to hear the recordings of each individual show that this album was built on. Yeah. Yeah. You see the differences in set lists and what songs that they were performing. I don't think Rush did the same set list um two nights in a row back then. Um, you know, which speaks to that show in in Glasgow, you know, what They they did that was recorded over two nights and i would be interested to see what those individual shows look like. And then the ones in Montreal, you know, recorded, I think that was one night. So I'd love to see that one show in Montreal on the moving pictures tour, see if camera eye was a part of that set list or to see what, what they were playing. So hopefully at some point we do, I mean, Neil speaks to the hours and hours of tape that they had for these shows, right? Right. right? So it leads me to believe that somewhere there is this stuff that, you know, maybe the recordings didn't come out right or maybe, you know, who knows? I I, I would think that Rush did things right and did things, you know, with precision. So maybe these shows do exist and maybe – I don't know, the 45th anniversaries in three years of this album in in, in uh, 2026. Maybe they do that. Maybe they do wait for the 50th anniversary to release this stuff. I don't know, but at some point I hope they do release that stuff.
0: Yeah, I do think this is the I mean, they've, they've got a number of, of live albums that they've released. I think this is the most definitive live album for them. Um, Like UFO's Strangers in the Night. Um, I know that our friend Turbo, who's not the Hugest Rush band. He did run a poll that I saw uh, probably about three weeks ago of Rush live albums. And this was the one that won the poll. The other ones he had on there were All the Worlds, Worlds of Stage. Um, I think he had Rush and Rio. And the other one may have been a show of hands. And this one was the one that came out on uh... top.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, Exit Stage Left, I think the reason why it would be number one is because as we said you know this was Rush celebrating their evolution of the last two albums especially you know with Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures and what they were about to become and it helps when three of their biggest songs Free Will Tom, Tom Sawyer and Spirit of the Radio are on the album um, Limelight is, is a huge omission Obviously, has YYZ, which was a huge deal back in the day, and it really embodies where they were at this time and place in their career and what they were about to do and the journey that they were about to go on. Because, like I said, they were a band that kept evolving, and some people make the argument that they maybe evolved too far, but with any artist, you have to let them go on their journey and, and do what they need to do artistically, and that's what they did. They never... They, they always did their, did their thing. They did what they wanted to do. They didn't worry about what was appealing to fans. They never did anything that would bring in more fans, right? You know, sometimes these bands from their generation, from that era made music that would put them on the radio or get them on the radio. Rush didn't write anything to get on the radio. Rush was just accepted by the radio, right? Radio stations played them. Yeah. Tom Sawyer, you know, Spear of the Radio, obviously are, are more friendly to the ear, but they're no, by by no means. When you hear those songs, you don't say top forty. No, that's a top forty hit, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it um, it's 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 part of their legacy. In fact, this is the this is the, their definitive live album, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely, I
0: agree with you. Um, and the sound quality of the album is tremendous. Um, I would like to say that the success of Rush is due to Bob and Doug McKenzie, but I really think it is uh, the complete package in this album. Between the song selection as an overview of their catalog to this point, between their musicianship, between the interplay in the band, and the fact that it just sounds great when you listen to it.
1: And it also speaks to where they were going. You know, like each album kind of kept chipping away at something else like, okay, we're going to do this now, but the next album is not going to be like this. There's going to be similarities, but it's going to be different. And then, you know, you add in signals and you go in, in, you know, from, from that album and beyond, it's just, is the, you know, the, you entered into the keyboard um moment in the act of rush, but they didn't stay there forever too. They went back with counterparts and more of a guitar driven album. and, and, uh, they were a- able to add all those elements together, which made them so unique in who they are and why their legacy still stands the test of time. Very similar legacy to, to Zeppelin. And I, you know, I use, I use Zeppelin as a comparison to Rush and they're very different in a lot of ways, but I think the biggest similarity with them is. When you listen to Led Zeppelin 1 all the way through in through the outdoor, there is an evolution that's happening within Zeppelin that a lot of bands did not do other than Rush. Rush was evolving similar to what Zeppelin was doing. They wanted to add different elements. They wanted to add in different things sonically. Um, and they were both masters of it. Why? And it's why their mystique lives on even beyond their existence. Bud Zeppelin hasn't released an album since 1980. They're bigger now than they were back then. Rush has been gone now for several years, yet they keep resonating with people. In, in bands today talk about their influence, and the music today is becoming more appreciated than it was, even though it was greatly appreciated by Rush fans. It's It's becoming even more today than it was during their heyday.
0: Yeah, and I think that the fact that this came out on top on the most recent uh, poll when you were uh, asking uh, what album should we talk about, that this was the one that was selected, I think that speaks to its enduring quality.
1: Absolutely. Any final words?
0: Um, Let's see. I, I, as you were talking about the evolution of them, I think you're right. It um, They did evolve, and certainly there are periods that I like more myself than others. There was the Introduction to the keyboards in the late 80s, and then they kind of came full circle back to um, the later albums where there was more of a uh, a harder guitar approach to things. Um, but this, this particular album is kind of a, a gemstone that stands out in their career as providing a glimpse into the band as a band um, that you can point somebody to it. If they don't know Rush, I wonder where they've been living. But uh, this would certainly be an excellent place for them to get a taste of what they're like.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. This is, you know, if you're looking for a live performance, a great live album from Rush. If you're new to Rush and you're looking for a live performance, this is the place to start. This is really the when Rush ruled the world, so to speak. This was this period, nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty one. 1981 into signals in 1982 this is when they were probably grew more than any other period in their career
0: Rolled the world and rolled the stage
1: absolutely man way to wait a way to put a bow on that <laughs> i appreciate you, you you doing this once again man this is always great and always entertaining and always enjoy talking these albums
0: thank you jay i, I like i love talking about these live albums it's I devote a part of every week to listen to a live album and it is always fun to break them down.
1: Everyone that is Rob in the hood. You can follow him on Twitter at the recidivist. And I'm Jay Scott. This is another episode of the hook rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast, our live album quarterly series. Although we're a little late, we still got it in the first quarter. And what one will we do next time? We've done some great albums. We did Live and Dangerous by Thin Lizzy. We've done uh, Rock in the Fillmore by Humble Pie, Live After Death by Maiden, Strangers in the Night by UFO, Kiss Alive by Missing Any of Them. Oh, Unleashed in the East by Judas Priest. Right. right. I think that's it. I think that's so Thanks. far part of the catalog. Yeah. So which one will we do next? I know we'll probably vote on... No Sleep Till Hammersmith by Motorhead. Live Killers will be in there. And what other two albums will I bring aboard in the poll? We'll see what happens.
0: Someday I'll convince you that the Altman Brothers should be included.
1: <laughs> i got to do that. So, <laughs> All right, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank
0: you, Jay. Appreciate it.
1: All right, everyone. Take care of each other. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We will chat soon. Thanks.